All right, did you get the difference between what Ann just said about being illegal and being unthinkable? Isn't that a good way to think about it? It actually is going to play right into what we're talking about today. To make something unthinkable versus illegal. It's the court systems to decide legalities. It's the church's role to make something thinkable or unthinkable. Today we're starting a new series. A month from today, we begin Lent. Lent is when we take time to reflect for a period of time, several weeks, when we reflect on the cross. And every year we take a different theme at, during Lent and reflect on the cross and what it means. So this year, what we wanted to do was to take the four weeks heading up to Lent to prepare us for that journey. So the series we're starting today, we're entitling, What Went Wrong? What Went Wrong? To answer the question of why the cross? Why the cross? We've been taught, uh, all of us, and this is appropriate, by the way, this isn't a criticism. We've been taught to look at the cross from a personal perspective. I sin, Jesus atoned for my sin, and now I am redeemed. That's good. Just woefully inadequate. You see, the, the Christian story and the gospel is so much bigger than that. So much bigger than our personal sin. And so in the Western church, in particular in the United States, we, are, uh, we don't have a good picture of what that looks like. So we want, as we move toward Lent, we want to ask what went wrong that actually required the cross? What actually happened? What actually happened in God's plan? Or another question we want to address is what did the New Testament authors see that we need to see as well? They saw things differently than we do. For example, when we talk about sharing the gospel, it's very popular to, for us to, to reduce it down to uh, you're a sinner and Christ died for the cro- on the cross for your sins and you need to accept that by faith. That's all true, but we don't have a record of them sharing that in the Bible. If you go and read all the evangelistic sermons and acts, that's not what they shared. They shared something very different. That's what we want to get into, is to look at the much bigger picture than simply your sin and what that means. So the way we're going to approach this for the next four weeks is we're going to ask the question, what, where does the Old Testament end and leave us hanging? In other words, what had failed? We're going to look at four major areas of what had failed in God's plan in humanity, in sinful, broken, depraved humanity, that the, that the Old Testament ends with a big question mark, series of question marks, that we won't know the answer until we get to the cross. Now, these areas, uh, they were talked about in Judaism up to the time of Christ, leading up to it. There were, and into the time of Paul's writing and Peter's writings, there were all kinds of Jewish writings that were addressing the very questions that we're going to raise. They just had no idea how to really answer the question. So when Jesus came, he was uh, extremely countercultural. He went in a very different direction than anybody had ever imagined to answer the bigger questions of Christianity about what is God's real plan. And nobody could believe it. They just couldn't believe it. I mean, Thomas is the supreme example. After Jesus rose from the dead, he goes, I'm not going to believe it. Unless I can see the nail prints, I don't, I don't believe it. 
This is way too crazy. And so Jesus walked up and said, there you go, take a look. Go ahead, stick your hand right here. That was the point at which Thomas said, my Lord and my God. Then it took them 30 years of wrestling to figure out what on earth happened before they began to write. They had to think about it. And then it took the church several hundred years to really lay down our core doctrines that we believe as Christians. It wasn't a simple matter of, here's what we believe about the Trinity, for example. It was so countercultural, so different. So we're going to raise in this question, in this series, what went wrong? We're going to raise four of the big issues that the Old Testament leaves us hanging. And uh, so that when we get to Lent and we begin to reflect on the cross, you can see uh, the breadth of what God began to do through his son, Jesus. So this week, we're going to start with the topic of our vocation, our calling before God. Why were we actually created? Okay. Why were we actually created? Most of us reduce Christianity down to a simple formula. We sin and we need Jesus to get us to heaven. Okay, that's true. I'm not going to argue against that. So whatever you hear this morning, I'm not undoing anything that you believe. What I want to do is expand it. So that's how we think of we sin and we need Jesus to get us to heaven. It often takes the form of kind of a works contract, if you will. God asks humans to obey a moral code. And because we don't, we're going to be punished. That's how we think of it. So we have to work really hard. We see this in the garden. The uh, Adam and Eve in the garden, their continued life was dependent on keeping the moral code that God had laid down. They didn't keep it, did they? So they were banished from the garden. We see it with Israel. They had to keep the Mosaic law. They couldn't do it. So since we can't keep the code, Jesus had to come and obey the law perfectly and pay the penalty for our sin. That's how we think of it. That's a reductionist view of Christianity. We reduce it down to that. Those who believe in Jesus go to heaven. Those who don't go to hell. The ultimate goal then is for our sins, I mean our souls, to escape this earthly body in order to find rest and existence outside of space and time. That's how we think about it. The problem is, that's not how the Bible thinks about it. One of the most stunning questions I got asked in my seminary education was show me where the Bible says you die and go to heaven. It doesn't. We're going to have to wrestle with that. And what is actually meant by that language? You see, way back in the 3rd and 4th century BC, when the Greek philosophers were writing, Plato began to develop the argument of what we think of now as escapist philosophy. Some of you that go way back to high school when you may have read the analogy of the cave for some of you. Some of you, that's a long time ago. I get it. His basic argument was this. I'm sitting in a cave and I'm looking at the back of the cave. Behind me are, are fires and people walking back and forth. All I can see is the shadows. The shadows. That's all I can see in life are the shadows. If I could turn around, I would see true reality. But I can't. The only way to see true reality is through escaping the bounds of the material world. It was an escapist philosophy that permeated every religion, including ours. 
including ours. The problem is, is that it goes against a whole bunch of biblical passages. I have come that you might have life and have it abundantly right now. The kingdom of God is standing in your midst right now. And so we have to make sense of that. And typically we don't. We overlook it. The author of Hebrews, by the way, takes Plato's argument in the same language that Plato uses and uses it in a very different way, uses it against him to show that true enlightenment actually starts right now for the Christian. You see, we hope for what we have already tasted, for what we already possess. We possess the Holy Spirit. So we've tasted love. Now, don't get me wrong. This is not the end. There's more glory coming. Far more. But we already taste it. We've tasted joy. The world hopes for what they can only imagine. We hope for what we've already tasted. That's the language used in Hebrews. Those who have tasted of the goodness of the Lord. We taste it. So therefore, our working out is actually that. We work out our faith because we already possess the Holy Spirit and have tasted those good things. The world, on the other hand, works in order to achieve those things. We try to do good works, the world says, so that we feel joyful. It's just the opposite for us. We already have tasted the joy, therefore we live it out. That's why when you move into the life of your neighbor and begin to love them, you're giving them a taste of something that they can't get any other place. What we do in life becomes very, very important. So Plato's argument, his escapist mentality, philosophy, permeated, including our religion, Christianity, especially in the West, where our hope is placed on escaping from this world. So we tend to think of heaven as a place to which we escape. But what if sin is much more than simply breaking a moral code? What if it's far more destructive than that? And what if God has much more in store for our eternal destiny than going to heaven? What if there's more in store? That's the question we're going to begin to wrestle with. In order to answer that question, we're going to go back to the very beginning of Genesis. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. If I were to say to you, and I have said this before, some of you have heard it, I'm going to, I'm going to have four children so they will uh, uh, grow up to worship me and glorify me. You'd feel real uncomfortable with that statement, wouldn't you? So when you ask, uh, and many of you probably give this answer. I've been in the classroom for many years and I know how people think now. If you ask the average Christian, why did God create you um, and save you? It's to glorify him. The problem with that is that that makes him a little bit narcissistic. Okay. Think about this with your children as a model. Your children bring you glory by living life the way you taught them to live it. So my children are now grown up. The way they live their life now reflects on me. As my children were growing, Nancy and I learned very quickly that uh, the way the children acted at home was not a good determiner of how the values were sinking into their world. I listened to when they went out and visited other families, we would sit down with the family and say, what were our children like when we weren't around? Your children were great. 
And that's when we receive glory because we could see our children outside of our presence living the lives that we thought were important. How does a tree glorify God? By being a tree. What does a tree do? Provide shade, exchanges carbon dioxide for oxygen, all that kind of stuff, right? Fruit. And as it does that, it brings glory to the Lord. All aspects of creation bring glory to the Lord by fulfilling their purpose. So what is our purpose? Genesis 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us make humans in our image, in our likeness, set. Here's the purpose. So that they may rule over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, over the livestock, all the wild animals, over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created humans in his own image, in the image of God. He created them male and female. He created them. They worked in partnership. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill all the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth, and every tree that has fruit with seed in it, they will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth, and all the birds in the sky, and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. When God saw all that he had made, and it was good, it was very good, then he rested. Last thing he did, was create us in his image to steward creation. That is our job. To steward all of creation. Now, that's just kind of a little bit of information. In a little bit of a minute, moment, we're going to look some later passages that expand on that. What does that really mean? But our core responsibility is to steward creation. That's where we failed right there. By the way, when God rested, it doesn't mean he stopped working. In all of Jewish theology, they understood that God was still at work because babies were born and people died on the Sabbath, the day of rest. So God was still at work. What this means that God rested, it means that he finished the project of creation, sat back with a good big smile on his face and said, perfect, let's get to work. The construction project is over. So he rested from the construction project so that he could begin the whole reason for the construction project. Why does this exist? All of this. It was created for our benefit. For two reasons. For us to enjoy it. We're good at that, aren't we? But the second reason is to give us a constant way of learning how good the Lord is. We see his glory reflected. We see his immensity reflected. We see all of that in creation. And the world, the unbelieving world, they, they capture a glimpse of it, which is why they try to get away. They, they can see a, a shimmer of that. And so our job is to steward all of creation. What does that mean? The assumption behind this Genesis passage is that we would enjoy fellowship with the one true living God for all of eternity. But something happened. We call that the fall. We call that original sin. Something happened to break that, that relationship. The problem of sin is not that it is the breaking of a moral code, although that is true. That is true, but that's not really the problem of sin. 
we're going to look more at this as weeks go by. But sin, when it entered the world, led to two very devastating results. Two devastating results. Number one, it led to idolatry, which leads us away from the one true living God. And every one of you is an idolater. Every single one of you. Every single one. You see, it's supposed to be God, us, we worship God, and we care for creation. We took creation and did this. We're going to look in more detail next week about that. So all of a sudden, we begin to aspire for wealth, position, significance. We begin to find things that replace our true fellowship with God. None of us know how to perfectly worship the Lord. Every one of us is an idolater at some level. So that's the first destructive thing that happened with sin came into the world. But the second one is that it corrupted or distorted our genuine humanness, which is our true vocation. We don't know how to be true humans. That's what's behind the language of we're being transformed into the image of Christ. That's technical language. You know what that says? He's a human. He's a true human. We're being transformed into that. All of the reformers wrestled with that and came up with different ways of answering the question, what does it mean to have our human capacity restored? Because we lost it. We're selfish. We're greedy. Aren't we? We are. And so part of God's plan is a restoration of humanity. And as you move toward Christ, you become more loving, more generous, more compassionate. Your human capacities are being restored And everything that you do becomes very important in this process. So failure to recognize the true destructiveness of sin continues, I think, and many others, to result in this heaven and earth dualism that's so prominent, where we place our hope in escaping the world, not in transforming within the context of the world in which we live. It got so bad at one point in the history of the church in the last hundred years that the church itself said, it doesn't really matter if we abuse this planet. It's going to burn up. It's not going to burn up. That's a misinterpretation of Second Peter. It's not going to burn up. It's going to be renewed. That's a different concept. We are not escaping to a better place to leave the world behind. That's an incorrect, I believe, an incorrect view of Christianity. A far healthier view, and I think biblical view, the goal is a renewed human vocation within God's renewed creation. 2 Corinthians 5, if anyone is in Christ, they are already part of the new creation. That's us. That's us. What did Jesus say? Blessed are the meek, they shall inherit the earth. Earth. Where does Revelation 21 and 22 end up? On the new earth. The renewed earth. If the goal is a renewed vocation, then all of our life becomes important. There's another piece added, though, to this in Exodus chapter 19. The Israelites have now been taken, uh, led out of Egypt. And in Exodus 19, we get another clue as to what this vocation looks like, why we were originally created, what it means to be made in his image, and what was supposed to happen, and what God eventually wants to restore. This is Exodus 19. On the first day of the third month, after the Israelites left Egypt, 
So beginning of the third month now, they've been out of Egypt almost three months. They're now in the desert of Sinai. Verse 3, Moses went up to God and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all of the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Hear that? We become the treasured possession of the one true living God. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. This is what it means to be a human. This is what it means to be a human. We are now a kingdom of priests and a holy people. This begins to get at what it means to be truly human. This is what it means to be made in the image of God. John Calvin argued that we are to be mirrors that reflect the Creator's wise stewardship, His goodness, His love, His mercy, His justice, all of that. We are mirrors that reflect that outward. That's what reflecting the glory of the Lord is. All that the Lord does is good. That's what we should be doing. But mirrors reflect two ways, don't they? Because the other part of that, which he argued, many people sense, is that we are to reflect back to him the praises of all creation. By living life the way we were intended. That's how our children bring us glory. By living lives the way we ask them to live it. And we get to smile and watch it happen. So we're mirrors. As priests, we get to stand at that point, that exhilarating point where heaven and earth come together. That was the argument of the reformers. All believer priests. And they were, granted, they were protesting the Catholic Church at that phase of history by saying we are all priests. We stand at that point where heaven and earth come together. It's an exhilarating place. And quite honestly, in a sin-filled world, it's a dangerous place. It's a place where we may lose our life. But it is the place where we stand between heaven and earth. There is no billboard out there talking about the glory of the Lord. It's us. We are the kingdom. And we are living our lives out there. That's the vocation that we lost. So therefore, creation becomes critical in our theology because we're to steward all of creation. Now, you may think of the word environmentalism when I say that. Sure, that's a piece of it, but it's far bigger than that. Because being a priest cares for all aspects of the creation that God put together. That includes you. I steward you by loving you, praying for you, spending time with you. You steward me by taking care of me. Thank you, by the way, for all the people that have driven me around the last six weeks because I couldn't drive. I'm so grateful for you. I see a bunch of you out there. I finally got to drive on Friday for the first time. The doctor said, keep it short. Don't drive to Kansas because I had hip surgery. So I drove to the rec center and back, and believe it or not, that was enough. (laughs) Thank you for that. That's caring for creation because I'm part of creation. Proverbs says a godly person cares for their animals. That's part of stewardship. So caring for creation, creation care is critical in our theology, which does include the earth, but so much more 
than that. This is why we were created and how we are to function as image bearers. In other words, we were created to live as worshiping stewards within God's creation. That's why we have bodies. To live within God's creation rather than beings who, through moral perfection brought by Christ, leave earth and go to heaven, someplace like that. Some of you have heard me say, one of the last classes I taught at CCU when I lived down in the city was, uh, I taught undergraduates, and I had 40 of them in my class. And I asked them, how many of you are looking forward to eternity? Not one hand went up. These are the cream of the Christian crop. These are all Christians. How many of you are looking forward to eternity? Not one hand went up. I said, why? Tell me why. And we have managed in the West to create this image. Think about our Sunday school pictures of clouds and angels playing harps and all that. Heaven becomes one eternal church service. No wonder they didn't look forward to it. Shoot me now, put me out of my misery. Or better yet, don't shoot me now because I have to go be part of an eternal church service. That's a very, very, very unbiblical, poor view. Being priest to God over all creation is where we end up. At the end of the story in Revelation 5, and we're going to look at this one on Easter Sunday, he says in verse 9, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. This is after the resurrection. You have... Uh, because, uh, because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe, every language, every people and every nation, every people group is important. You have made them to be a kingdom, priests, to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. This is our home. We better start taking care of it. This is our home. I don't know about you, but I love the thought of living here for eternity. I've been all over the world. I found lots of places that are dirty and polluted, but I haven't found a place that I didn't like. wonder what it'd be like when it's cleaned up. This is the end goal. We are to be a kingdom of priests. We are to be a holy nation. We are to reflect His glory to all of creation. This gives us insight into what this reflection looks like. We reflect his wisdom and justice into our world. All the goodness of God we are to reflect into this world. That's what we lost. Once we get the goal right, then the biblical perspective of why Jesus had to die begins to take shape. For example, this is what he's referring to when he talks about the kingdom on the earth. It's here now. That's us. There's no other way that your friends are going to see it. Their only option is by looking at you. It's worth doing it right. It's worth doing it right. The problem, we're going to talk more about this next week, is idolatry and the loss of worship. You see, we have turned this vocation upside down and we've begun to worship creation. We aspire to the wrong things. We aspire to wealth, significance, position, success, all of those things. And we don't know how to reverse it very well, do we? None of us are very good at it. So the question we're going to wrestle with is, how did he do that? You see, the ultimate result of reversing it is slavery. Um, we lose our freedom and finally death. As the, Testament un- as the Old Testament unfolds, what we see 
is that Israel failed more and more at this. They were to be God's chosen people to, to reach the rest of the world. They failed. In fact, they became part of the problem. They became more corrupt, more greedy as time went by. So God had to do something different. And the question is, how did he do that? You see, you only have two options. You could be moving toward Christ, and you could be moving away from Christ. There's no such thing as being static. Those are the only two options. The non-Christian world is clearly moving away from Christ. By the way, you might think of the picture of Gollum in Lord of the Rings. He starts off as handsome, and as the more and more he chases the ring, the more he loses his definition. That's a picture of what it means to slowly move away from Christ. We become less and less human. You think of the evil, most evil, vile people in world history. What was human about them? By the time they were so destructive. And so Christ came to reverse all that. And he does it through us. How did he do that? And how did the cross solve that problem? Welcome to Lent. Father, thank you. Thank you that you made us and you thought that was very good. Thank you when you sat back and rested and looked at all that you had made, you smiled. And thank you that when we blew it and we replaced you with creation, that you didn't give up on us. Just the opposite. You began to act out of the only way you know how. Your mercy, your love, your goodness, your kindness, your generosity, your graciousness. You began to act in our world to restore, to reverse that, to take us back to what we're created to be, to restore our vocation as humans. Thank you. In your son's name we pray. Amen.